Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to Voices in Leadership, a series focusing on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I am Betty Johnson and I have the privilege to direct this program and introduce today's guests. Peter Staley, a renowned prominent HIV AIDS rights activist, has often found himself on the front lines giving voice to an issue that continues to permeate our society. He was diagnosed with AIDS-related complex in 1985 while working as a bond trader at J.P. Morgan on Wall Street. In 1989, Mr. Staley led ACT UP, an international direct action advocacy group working to impact the lives of people with AIDS. He organized activists to force Burroughs Welcome to lower the price of anti-HIV drug AZT by infiltrating their North Carolina headquarters and sealing themselves in a third floor office. This led to a demonstration on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, disrupting trading, but resulting in a price reduction of AZT three days later. In 1992, Mr. Staley became the founding director of TAG, Treatment Action Group, which in 1993 successfully lobbied for a radical restructuring of the management of the government's AIDS research effort. In 1994, Mr. Staley was appointed by President Clinton to the National Task Force on AIDS Drug Development. He also was a board member of AMFARS, the Foundation for AIDS Research from 1991 to 2004. In January 2004, Mr. Staley launched an ad campaign using his own money to bring attention to an epidemic of crystal meth use among gay men. Two months later, New York City appropriated the first government funds anywhere in the U.S. targeting meth prevention for gay men. In 2013, Peter Staley was appointed by Governor Andrew Cuomo to New York State's Ending the Epidemic Task Force, which developed a blueprint to drastically lower HIV infections in the state by 2020. In all of the meetings, talks, and other activities and sessions, Stella, Peter's friendly companion of seven years, is always by his side. <laughs> Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Dr. Shannon Lockman, Associate Professor in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases here at the school. Please join me in welcoming Peter Staley to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. We are delighted to welcome our audience to today's Voices in Leadership with Mr. Peter Staley, um, with whom I'm very honored, deeply honored to speak. The purpose of this series is to enhance the leadership knowledge of students in the broader public health community in order to learn about leadership decisions and judgments that you have made that have really impacted the trajectory of the world. I think it's truly impossible for us to imagine what it was like to be diagnosed with HIV in the 1980s when it was essentially a death sentence. And really, I think over the last 30 years, HIV has been transformed from this death sentence to a chronically treatable disease. The costs of ARVs, antiretroviral drugs, have plummeted from tens of thousands of dollars per person per year to less than $100 per person per year. 
It is true that far too many people died of AIDS, far too many people are becoming infected, far too many are living untreated, um, far too many are living in the shadow of homophobia, yet progress has been remarkable and you and advocates like you have contributed tremendously to this progress and really made it possible. Um, so I really wanted to start with uh, maybe speaking about the context and history of your work um, and maybe some personal perspective before moving to some of the leadership decisions and the implication for today's world. Sure. So I think, we, as, as Betty just mentioned, you were working on Wall Street mm. um, and surrounded by rampant homo homophobia mm. and AIDS stigma in the 80s when you came out as being both gay and HIV positive, first to your family and then to the world. And I think I would really love to hear what gave you the courage to do that. What can we learn from that? Where did that come from? Um, well, thank you. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, uh, as I uh, look back at that uh, dark year of uh, 1985, um, uh, when I found out I was HIV positive, the, the test itself for HIV had only come out that summer. Um, and um, I, my diagnosis was, was completely unexpected. Um, Rock Hudson had just died from AIDS, and the country was in a national panic. Um, uh, there were magazine stories about how uh, parents were pulling kids out of school because um, uh, when they heard a rumor that one of the kids had HIV. So it was very much like what we just went through with Ebola and that, that kind of national panic and scare uh, 10 times over uh, for HIV AIDS in 1985. Um, and I got this news and there were, and, and it was also a period where there were no treatments um, and virtually no response from our government uh, at that point. Um, and that's what was most upsetting. Um, our government has always responded to new, new epidemics. Um, and this was the first time in American history where we decided not to. Um, and it was clearly driven by homophobia <clears throat> and, and the communities that were being affected. Um, uh, so fortunately for me, I mean, uh, I, uh, I started doing uh, all the research I could to see what was going on. I had been a closet case. I didn't, I didn't know any, any of the politics of the gay community in New York. Um, and I just put myself on a, on a learning curve. Um, if there's one thing that probably helped me during that early time uh, was uh, just kind of a lifetime ability of being able to compartmentalize. Um, and as I learned about the disease, I realized that with my CD4 count in the mid-300s, that I wasn't quite in the uh, really frightening danger zone yet of less than 200, where you start getting the opportunistic diseases that, that kill a person with AIDS. Um, so I felt uh, I didn't have to panic right then and there, uh, um, and then I could, you know, I probably had a couple years at least. Um, and I could watch my CD, and I had that one thing, that test, that I could do uh, to, to center myself. Um, so, as long, so once I calmed myself down and put myself on that learning curve, 
and realized I had a little time to work with, um, I made a very conscious decision that I wasn't going to think about the last six months of my timeline. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it seemed purposeless mm -hmm. uh, uh, and strategically stupid mm -hmm. to, to, to concentrate on um, thinking about myself dying. Mm -hmm. um, so the mission was to just add months uh, to the front end of that <laughs> and push that further and further back. Um, um, I made some bad calls uh, in retro retrospect. I, I had this foolish notion that uh, I was going to try not to let my diagnosis radically change my life. So I made the decision to stay on Wall Street as long as I could, uh, not tell anybody at work. Um, uh, after ACT UP was formed and I, I leaped into that movement um, a year and a half after my diagnosis, uh, being closeted on Wall Street really hindered my ability to, to be a full, you know, to dive into activism full time. And I led this crazy double life of closeted bond trader by day and AIDS activist by night. Wow. Um, I did things that wouldn't uh, risk my job, like I became head of fundraising because that wouldn't be very public. Um, I occasionally showed up at demonstrations, but I would hold the poster in front of my face <laughs> as as we went by any cameras, you know. Um, so, and of course I didn't, and I held off planning, doing things that I wanted to do, like plan demonstrations mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So um, you make, you know, you don't always make the right choices. I was, I was, I was lashing on to things for stability's sake, I think. Um, but my CD4 count uh, made the ultimate decision. It went into the danger zone. Um, and I realized that that double life was untenable. Um, so I walked into my boss's office and told him everything and said, uh, this is my last hour here. Uh, I'm going on disability. You can tell the bond market tomorrow morning uh, and you can tell them everything. Um, and uh, he did uh, and they heard about it in Tokyo in 30 seconds and, uh, and in London 30 seconds after that. And, um, and a week later I was getting arrested. So. <laughs> you made the transition rapidly. I, it was all in at that point. Yeah, it was all in. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. We received one, it's a, it's a quick question, but I thought it was an interesting one, one online question, um, which is somewhat, I guess, about you personally as well, is whether you are an extrovert and whether you feel that that is an asset to being an effective activist. Yeah, I don't know many introverted activists. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> that's a quick answer to that one. Um, yeah, I, I guess the internet could allow uh, for the creation of uh, introverted activists, uh, <laughs> people who, who, who do their activism almost entirely through um, online positioning and, and 
uh, finding a voice online. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe maybe that uh, allows an avenue for that. Mm -hmm. um, but the coalition work and and uh, uh, obviously getting in the streets and getting in people's faces yeah. and um, that would be very hard for an introvert, I yeah. would imagine. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I would encourage any of you who have not yet seen um, How to Survive a Plague from 2012, um, which tells some of the story of ACT UP and TAG and the early days and features Peter Staley prominently. If you have not seen that, I would strongly encourage you to, to watch that. It's marvelous. Um, and I was wondering if you could share, there have been so many accomplishments and milestones over the years with your early and ongoing activist work, but maybe a couple of contributions of ACT UP, TAG, AIDS meds that you think the audience should know about. I think many of the audience members will be familiar right. with those, but right. others may not. Well, first off, it's worth saying up front that um, it is awkward for me to sit on this stage and talk about what goes into leadership, especially given uh, uh, the type of work I've done, uh, especially early on with ACT UP, which was um, a leaderless movement. And um, uh, the, the introduction about, uh, I, me leading ACT UP was inaccurate in that sense. ACT UP uh, uh, led all of us, and, and it was a, a pure, uh, one of the purest examples of people power in American history. Um, and it was never reliant on any individual, um, with the exception of Larry Kramer sparking it with a speech. Uh, even he had uh, virtually no uh, substantial influence over the direction of the movement. Um, uh, we had hundreds of leaders, right, leadership mm -hmm. kind of people within, within the movement. And we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of follower types. Mm. Um, uh, so, so um, and, and, and it was that conjoining uh, and that momentum that ultimately is the reason I'm sitting here uh, alive today um, and able to look back at this and pinpoint what made a difference. Um, the uh, movie How to Survive a Plague really concentrated on the beautiful story of how we became our own experts and uh, the birth of patient advocacy. Um, where we demanded a seat at the table and then became part of the process that ultimately helped save our lives. What it, what it only glances at in the movie, though, was how we changed the public debate uh, very, very quickly mm -hmm. in the first few years of our existence. Um, remember, this happened six years into the crisis. It took a way too long for the gay community to rise up uh, and take to the streets. There was lots of activism happening in those early years, but very little of it broke into the national conscious. Um, it was only when a large uh, community response was, was formed with the specific purpose of putting our bodies into the streets and, and coming out, as it were, uh, that uh, things really started to change. And during those first six years, uh, 
homophobia, according to Gallup polling, what, a backlash was occurring. It was just getting worse. Um, the AIDS crisis was feeding this, this fear and this hatred of homosexuals. Um, so we had to change that dynamic uh, first and foremost before anything was going to move our direction. They weren't spending any, anything on AIDS research and we were looking for treatments to save our lives. We had, we had to get the government to, to act and the quickest way to get the government to act is to get the public to insist upon it. Um, so we had to change that public conversation and do it fast. And we did it with large demonstrations, first at the Food and Drug Administration, um, where we surrounded the building and uh, hundreds of us were putting our bodies on the line. That imagery, uh, that news story, which was uh, top of the news on all three networks, um, uh, was really the first time Americans saw hundreds of homosexuals together, period. Um, we had never been a national story. I mean, we, Anita Bryant was the only other story that really broke the national consciousness, and that was about her, mm -hmm. not us. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that was in the 70s. Uh, and this was a, because we were so uh, hated that we were largely a closeted community. We could hide, mm -hmm. unlike uh, uh, African Americans in the Civil Rights Movement. We could hide. And we, we, we went to our cities, we created our ghettos, we created our bars, um, and we rarely ventured into the national consciousness. We, we were afraid of a backlash, we were afraid of rocking the boat. We had our national gay rights groups, but they, they, uh, they did, did mostly inside politics. So that decision to go in front of the cameras in mass numbers and say, we're here, uh, we're dying, we're gay, we're lesbians and gays coming together and we're desperate, that imagery just shattered uh, the American myth of the homosexual, mm -hmm. that, that, we were, uh, that we were weak and uh, uh, timid and mm -hmm. would crawl into a corner if you raised your arm against mm -hmm. us. Um, and that instantly started changing the mm -hmm. Gallup polling on mm -hmm. homophobia. Mm -hmm. The biggest plummet in history happened in 18 months mm -hmm. uh, in late 1989, uh, between 88 and 89, uh, on whether homosexuality should be illegal. 21% drop. Um, in just 18 months. And uh, the polling started showing huge numbers of Americans saying, we should uh, focus on fighting AIDS. The government should spend money fighting AIDS. Um, the press ate our story up. Very sympathetic narrative. Uh, we were being ignored by our government. We were forming, we were so ignored that we were forming our own organizations to to take care of our death mm -hmm. and dying. It was mm -hmm. a, a beautiful, sympathetic story that started being endlessly rolled out in the mainstream media. We gave the country a massive guilt trip, mm -hmm. and, it, and, it, and it worked. They didn't have to love us, but they did not like seeing, they did not like being forced to see that their hatred and their government was letting thousands of their own citizens 
die horrible, horrible deaths, mm -hmm. uh, and so we you, forced them to see it. You changed the narrative almost and, overnight. Yeah, and three years later, over a billion dollars a year yeah. was being spent at the NIH yeah. on AIDS research, yeah. Yeah. just three years later. Yeah. By that point, there were other disease groups complaining <laughs> about how much AIDS was getting, yeah. uh, that we were this huge, powerful lobby now. Yeah. And yeah. it, it is that fast. Yeah. And I think um, this kind of brings, brings us naturally to, I think, a question that uh, it was foremost on my mind when I knew I was going to be able to speak with you and that also two others wrote in. And it really is, it, it um, speaks to how you straddled the world of out there, bold activism. I don't know how many times you've been arrested. I won't ask. Ten. Ten. Okay. <laughs> Ten times. All right. Thank no you. No record. Um, um, <laughs> But you Good also <laughs> armed yourself. You became a physician, a scientist. You learned about the Byzantine workings of government funding and pharmaceutical development and regulatory approvals for drugs. So you straddled these two worlds at a time that was incredibly contentious and where there must have been undoubtedly tension between the activist community and mistrust of the establishment and vice versa. But you managed to do that effectively and I think we can probably learn a lot from you today. So I think two others, people ask this online, what strategies do you think resulted in you and TAG being able to navigate that and how did you deal with those tensions? Well, for me personally, I mean, um, uh, you know, I was kind of, I always considered myself uh, very driven by logic um, in my activism. Um, uh, and many of the, many of our members were, were just purely driven by anger. Um, certainly I was angry, angry, but um, I, uh, I've always, uh, I was raised in a political family um, and uh, I, my dream was to get into politics someday, uh, and I was using Wall Street as a stepping stone uh, towards that end. Uh, and I was completely foolish into thinking I could do that uh, the rest of my life as a closeted homosexual. Of course, there are a lot of politicians that thought that too, um, mm -hmm. and got pretty high, got pretty far mm -hmm. before the game game got <laughs> exposed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so. I don't know, I, I started early on, because of my love of politics, uh, really fascinated um, about the grays in how everything works, that there is no black and white. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly there are many activists and, uh, who view things in, in black and white, and there are many purists out there. Um, uh, but um, I've always felt it really served me well to realize that uh, that pharmaceutical company that I'm going to launch a campaign against for the next few years, that they are not some sort of uh, evil empire. Uh, that's, that's the black and white story, right? Mm -hmm. The organization will portray them as such. ACT UP did that. We did a fair amount of that. But um, there are people there, certainly, this is my logic going off, there are certainly some people there that care. Um, there are some people in their research labs that are doing it because they want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, 
we can use that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't, don't, if, you, if you black and white the situation and push it all away, uh, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And, um, uh, and, and then later in life, I went through 12 steps. Um, and that's why I was, uh, uh, in, in 2004, uh, launched a whole line of activism around crystal meth in the gay community. Um, um, but I, I, uh, I realized then how uh, the grays go deeper than institutional um, and, uh, and politicians and, and your targets and your, or your own organization. Um, they're everywhere. That, uh, that realizing the fact that we are all up, excuse the language, um, uh, makes one incredibly uh, forgiving uh, about um, who you're dealing with um, and how to convince them to move in a, a certain direction. Um, um, so I think that's uh, that type of uh, logic and um, looking and working with the grays mm -hmm. is what uh, progressive activism is all about. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, we will have our followers who will always look at everything from a black and white perspective. But from my perspective, the, the, the activists who have stayed in the game the longest and have done the most leading are the ones that see the grays. Yeah, thank you. That was a, that was a really helpful answer to me personally. We, I think there are many questions that I and many others have about how you would translate your, what you have learned, what you have accomplished, the mistakes that you, you and others have made and rebounded from to today. And I think we all really appreciate hearing your voice today as much as we ever have. And I just want to read one of the online questions that we received. I don't, we won't have time to talk about all the things I think we'd hope to, but one of the questions was, as an LGBT rights activist in the 1980s, which was a tumultuous time for the community, what is your biggest concern going forward for 2017? And are you worried we're going backwards as a country? Um, yes, And what yes, do we do yes. about it? <laughs> uh, I'm actually, uh, well, first off, I, I don't feel like we're going backwards. I, I feel like we're in completely new territory as a country and um, uh, very, very frightening territory. Um, uh, I think we should resist any and all impulses to, to uh, and it's a very human impulse to, to self-comfort and to try to normalize what's going on right now. Um, until we have evidence that things are more normal. We have a preponderance of evidence that we have really taken a very dark turn as a country. Um, and uh, it's incumbent upon all of us to be uh, postured uh, with that reality until proven otherwise. Um, and to resist any and all narratives of attempting to normalize the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but uh, LGBT rights, believe it or not, and even HIV AIDS, um, 
I've been thinking uh, only partially about since the election. Mm. Um, uh, they. Uh, they, they seem to be the least of our problems. Mm -hmm. um, I think the LGBT community is, is going, going to probably be okay. I think there are many other communities that are under far more threat, especially immigrants um, and uh, uh, people of color. Um, so um, I really want to work in a larger progressive uh, resistance movement against the direction this country took. I want to be, I want to join a huge opposition movement um, that takes our country back. Um, and uh, that's for me going to be the work ahead. I'll keep doing some AIDS activism, I'll keep doing some LGBT rights activism, but intersectionality is the name of the game from mm -hmm. now on out. Mm -hmm. um, and we got a huge problem that, uh, to, to right the ship. Mm. Um, yeah. And all of us uh, can no longer stay on the sidelines. Yeah. And that, that's how we got into this mess. Yeah. Too many of us were on the sidelines. Um, and believe it or not, we've been told we have to wrap this up, but do you have any parting, <laughs> I think, words of kind of wisdom or suggestions to the, not just the scientific and the public health community, but others out there who, not only in health, but wish to be advocates from your experience? I think you already started to yeah. speak to that. But I mean, yeah, you know, I'm reminded uh, of that early activism where we were doing it uh, surrounded by an ever rising rate of death and dying in our immediate circles. Um, and we had no treatments and we had wave of wave of pessimistic news that hit us. Um, but uh, we had each other and um, we, uh, we knew we were right. Uh, we knew we were fighting for a righteous cause. Um, and we held each other up. And we just, activism is about plowing through pessimism. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, we created a tipping point. Um, and I think we're entering a period like that now, where we're about to get our asses whooped. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be brutal for the next few years uh, as we lose, as terrible things happen. Um, uh, but in response to that, we're going to win some battles and we're going to start organizing. There's a level of organizing that's already happening. Uh, if you haven't tapped into it, it's, I mean, especially in New York, uh, uh, I, 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 I Follow amazing narratives at Yale University right now, where thousands came together, um, and tap into that. The organizing going on now is extraordinary, and uh, we have each other. Uh, take care of yourselves. Uh, stay clear-headed. Uh, love each other, and uh, nobody could be on the sidelines anymore. Whatever career you do. Um, Add activist in front of it. Activist <laughs> lawyer, activist <laughs> doctor, activist public health official, activist minister, you name it. Um, uh, 
we have to we have to do this together from now on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Tremendous thanks to Peter Staley for speaking with us today and to our audience for being here. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.